Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today is The Stacks Book Club Day. We are joined again by Anthony Christian Ocampo, professor and author of the new book, Brown and Gay in L.A., He's back to help me dig into the memoir Fairest by Meredith Toulousan. The book explores the intersections of gender, identity, race, immigration, and sexuality, along with the author's experience of albinism and coming out as trans in the early 2000s. On the episode, you're going to hear Anthony and I share our very different experiences reading Toulousan's story, and we engage in some lively debate and criticism over representation, the responsibility of the memoirist, and even what it's like to disagree on a text with someone whose opinion you really respect. There are definitely spoilers in this episode. Be sure to listen to the end of today's episode to find out what our November book club pick will be. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of the show can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love The Stacks and want more of it, head to patreon.com slash The Stacks and join The Stacks back. The Stacks is an independent podcast, which means I rely on listeners like you to make the show possible every single week. In addition to knowing you're supporting a book podcast that you love, you also earn perks like our monthly virtual book club, bonus episodes, and access to our extremely lively and informative Discord, plus discounts on merch and a bunch of other things. So if you'd like to be a part of this wonderful bookish community, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. And of course, a quick moment to thank our newest members, Audra Van, Brianna, Jasmine Huff, Krista Hillhouse, Casey and Caroline Bishop. Thank you all so, so much. And thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. All right. Now it's time for my conversation with Anthony Christian Ocampo on the book Fairest by Meredith Toulousan. All right, everybody. I am so excited. I am joined again today by author, professor, sociologist, friend of the pod, Anthony Christian Ocampo. Anthony, welcome back to the Stacks. I'm so happy to be back. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here. It's book club day. We're talking about Ferris by Meredith Toulousan. It's a memoir. It. We will spoil the book. So for people who haven't listened yet or read the book yet, stop listening, come back in a little bit. So for people who want a little refresher course, Fairest is a memoir by Meredith Toulousan. Meredith was born in the Philippines. 
with albinism. And Meredith was also born a boy, uh, as the book says, a precocious boy, which we will get into. And eventually we follow Meredith to coming to America as a teenager, to going to Harvard as a smart person, and to transitioning to become a woman. Um, so it's sort of this journey of Meredith's life. How'd I do? No, that sums it up pretty good, I think, at least. Okay, well, we're gonna, we have plenty of time to get more into it. So we always start here. Anthony, what did you think of the book? So I have to give some context for how I came into this book. So as a kid, mm -hmm. As a teenager, I have memories of going to bookstores and literally combing through the stacks to find any book that had any mention of the word Philippines or Filipino. And it was so mm. rare that I'd even find one book that had more than like a paragraph. And so to, to pick up Ferris, I, my reaction to it is I didn't know what I've been missing, if you will, huh. because... Mm -hmm. There was so much of, in its memoir, she's, uh, she's Filipina, she's an immigrant, but a lot of the intricacies, whether it's like family dynamics or the words they use or the, the style of parenting, all that stuff was so familiar in a way that I feel like I've never really come across in other books before, at least not in the exact same way as this one. So I actually sped through the book really fast because I was, I was like inhaling it. Mm. And you've read it more than once? I read it once when it first came out and then I read it again for today, but I, okay. paid, I paid like special attention to the first, the book is broken up into three sections. Mm -hmm. One's about childhood, one's about Harvard years and one's about just like young adult relationships. And uh, I read it again, but I closely, closely read the first two sections. Okay, great. Here's what I thought. I'm not Filipino, so don't hate me. I didn't love the book. I was very mixed on this book. I had a lot of issues with the race and beauty stuff. I felt very uncomfortable reading a lot of that stuff. I felt like it was really steeped in a form of white supremacy that made me feel very icky. And I thought that it was a like, so here's the thing. I know about Meredith before reading this book from people that I respect, that Meredith is very smart, Meredith is a great writer, Meredith's very interesting, all of these things about Meredith. And I met Meredith, and I spoke to Meredith for like five minutes at an event. Lovely human, had a great time talking to her. I think part of my issue with the book is because the book only goes up through early adulthood, there's no reckoning with a lot of the things that I think Meredith has since reckoned with about race, beauty, and gender. I didn't feel like a lot of those conversations were being had. And so I felt like some of the toxic stuff about white supremacy and beauty were sort of just said and left in the book. And it really, it was like very, it was an uncomfortable read for me because I was getting like very frustrated. Um, I think Meredith is a fantastic writer. Like I really, I, I thought that the writing was good, but like the content of the writing really fucked me up. So that's sort of my like general opinion. And we'll get into a lot more stuff about the book and like a lot more detailed stuff. But I'm like nervous to have this conversation today because I really didn't like the book that much. <laughs> oh, no, I think it's OK. I mean, I think in the last episode you talked about how a you think people should talk about books and books yes. they don't necessarily like. And and that's an important conversation as well. And I think that, uh, you know, it's an interesting question because I would ask 
I've, I've never asked Meredith this myself, but I'm wondering like who's the audience for this book, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that would somewhat like shape how like the reception of it. To your point, I I think that there was a lot of moments where beauty standards and colorism emerge, like whether it's beauty standards in the Philippines, whether it's uh you know beauty standards when it comes to the gay community at Harvard, in particular the the you know Meredith's one friend who's who's black. And uh, she talks about how the aesthetic of this person is not necessarily in line with the aesthetics of, of like right. white gays and such. Right. And so G A Y Z gays, yes, white G A Y S. I feel like we're gonna get caught up doing G- oh yeah G A Y S instead between G A Y S and G A Z E because I think we're gonna talk about the white gays and the white gays. So <laughs> good yeah. luck to us. <laughs> that said, what I have to give it up to in terms of you know a touching on these topics is that well the way Meredith rendered how colorism and whiteness is is uh it shapes the everyday lives of Filipinos even those that don't even come to the United States the way it was rendered was so honest and so and I think like it was not necessarily painting the best picture of how Filipinos in the Philippines understand like dark skin versus light skin uh but i can totally see how when it came to how it landed it's uh it can be uncomfortable and i think also as as a gay person that's meandered in white gay spaces the just the like because she passed as white and as a gay white guy i felt like she was able to render how incredibly fucked up that world of white gay folks is when it comes to everything from race, class, um, body standards. So um, that's the part that I think that's how I read it when I when I yeah. was reading it. Sorry, that's how I read it when I read. That's the way it landed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want to come back to the passing part. I want to just touch on the what you were saying about the Philippines and also talking bad about books. So I do believe that we should be able to have like honest, open discourse about things we don't like and do like, especially when it comes to books, people know this about me. I think part of the reason that I'm nervous to have this conversation is because I'm not Filipino. I'm not gay. I can't pass for white. I am not trans. Like there's all these things that are part of who Meredith is that just aren't who I am. And so like, I'm constantly being like, is this my privilege? Is this my bias? Whatever. So that's what makes me nervous talking about this book because I feel like so out of my depth in a lot of ways. So I can only speak to how it made me feel and like my understanding of these things through reading and and life. So I just want to kind of say that not as a disclaimer, but just to let you know why I'm like ah about this, but I'm still going to talk bad about it a little bit. As far as like the rendering of like white beauty standards and all of that stuff, I think that that was in the book. Like for sure. I think that Meredith talks about, you know, how white people and how cis people, et cetera, are negotiating beauty and beauty capitalism in a lot of ways. But I don't feel like Meredith, the writer, reckoned with that in the book. I feel like Meredith, the writer, said, this is how it is. And I took advantage of that. And it worked great for me. Like, I kept getting the sense of, like, pride about Meredith's proximity to whiteness or Meredith's proximity to beauty or, honestly, Meredith's perceived proximity to those things, right? Like there's all these parts where Meredith's like, I'm beautiful. I'm so beautiful. And it's like, go off. Great. But like how that's her perception of herself or that this person's ugly or that this person is this. Like, it's so hard to 
have a conversation about this sort of stuff because it's like, how can I say whether or not you are or are not, or or your friend is or is not beautiful? Like it's all so based on, you know, whatever beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But I think like there's these parts where Meredith talks about, you know, wanting to be brown in the Philippines, but also loving being white in the Philippines, right? Like there's all these parts where it's like, I'd like to be brown because I'd like to fit in, but also like, look at me, I'm beautiful, I'm white. And I I don't know, like that's the stuff that really was like difficult for me to reckon with. And then on the flip side, or like, I guess moving on towards like passing, that was really hard for me because Meredith kept saying people and she really meant white people because every time she encountered a person of color, they were like, listen, bitch, you're not white. Like, I know you're like every time she encountered a person of color, they said, I know you're not white. And so I think it's really interesting that for her in the book, every time she said people, she meant white people and she didn't say white people. And that was really confusing to me, too, because we know that people knew that she was not white. Like so many people who were not white were like, you're not white. So that also I really really did not like that because I was like, stop making them the center. Why are these white people the center of your story? Why aren't you calling them white people? Yeah, I and this is where I think the insight into having like spent some time in the Philippines or grew up in Philippine culture kind of can inform that. But before I get to that, I wanted to touch on something that you said. You said reckoning, right? And so I think with the word reckoning, that highlights how when it comes to memoir there's the character of like the author is a character in the quote-unquote present moment of the story they're writing about and then at times there's a character that's the writer at the desk reflecting on that experience and so right I guess what I'm wondering with you is if if the book had been written in the way it was but there was some sort of like Fast forward to the way uh, she's reckoned with with whiteness or or in colonial standards of beauty or anti-blackness. Would the book have landed differently? I think so. I do. I do because I because I don't hold it against Meredith, the 15 year old or the 22 year old for believing these things about about herself and the world around her, because I know that. 20 years ago, I had really fucked. I I believed a lot of really fucked up things because I didn't know better and it had been conditioned in me. And I think that like part of the job of a memoirist is to say, this is what I remember and this is why it's relevant now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like that piece was missing. And, and I know that Meredith is now like, I, I think at the end of the book, they say like, I've been a woman now longer than I, than I was not one, you know, or like, I don't remember the exact phraseology around that, but like that means that there's been a whole lifetime of growth since where you left us that like I didn't feel was reflected in the book or maybe not even growth, just change observations, et cetera, that I didn't feel like was reflected in the book, which was frustrating to me because it sort of felt like what they were saying was therefore then what they still believed. Ah, okay. So this is where... It, this is interesting that we're having this convo because I was reading the book as I, the whole time I read it, even though I'm not trans, I am gay, queer. I was reading it as a quote unquote insider, like as someone that 
has seen the Philippines, has understood the way whiteness is just revered in that place. America is so incredibly revered, particularly in the context of schools. And, mm-hmm. and obviously school plays a very big role in, in Meredith's life. And witnessing what the what Nanai Carl, the grandmother, did in terms of like double downing on valorizing whiteness, like it was very accurate. And I, I know you're not disputing that it's it, it wasn't accurate, but I think like the part that grabbed me and maybe it was during the time that I read it because I read the book in 2021. I have an arc for it. Mm-hmm. And I just was watching social media and just seeing people speak. And it was like the like peak performance, like performing racial consciousness, mm-hmm. performing like how left you are or how politically engaged you are. And so juxtaposed to what was happening in the world at that time, I actually found it very, um, how do I put this? So as a gay person, as a Filipino, I think that I've been conditioned to be, to airbrush or to uh, put my best forward and really, really lock the unbecoming sides of my personhood in the closet for, for no one to see. It's like, mm-hmm. and, and same thing with like my family. Uh, and so I guess reading Meredith's book, Meredith's book as a whole and her willingness to engage with difficult childhoods or, or parents that weren't present. And then of course, like the racial politics of the Philippines, which are like, and the colorism in the Philippines, which is horrible. To some extent, I, I think it gave us a window into who she was. But to your point about the reckoning, I... I guess I didn't, I wasn't looking for that necessarily. Mm. Uh, and maybe it's because when I've seen Meredith, it's it's clear to me that she's worked it out. At the same time, right. I, I think like, here's the difference between me and Meredith that I think yields some of this, maybe the discomfort here. As a queer person, as a Filipino that grew up in the US, I, and I grew up in the predominantly POC schools and, and neighborhood, I have, as Tressie McMillan, Cotton put it like white people do not swim in my imagination. I have never been mm. embedded or have had the chance to be embedded in white social circles, whether I was at a uh, a PWI or probably white space or not. And so uh, I guess in some ways I was looking at her infiltration in a very like, oh, she's kind of like an anthropologist, like except she's studying the dominant group. But uh, mm-hmm. but I think that's. I always asked myself, like, as I was reading, I was like, I wonder who this person's, like, friends were. Like, who are they sitting with in the mm-hmm. cafeteria? Uh, mm-hmm. Sense I get is that, you know, I went to school very much like Merit. So I was at Stanford, but I, like, literally didn't hang out with any white people the whole four years. And so my <laughs> socialization and, re- like, the way my consciousness about race developed was, I, I guess, I, how do I put it? I've never had the chance to get to where Merit was when she was at Harvard. When it comes to like race. in relationship to white people. In relationship to white people. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you that it's sort of like maybe I mean you didn't use this word, but I'm gonna use it. Maybe like refreshing to see someone so openly speak about some like unbecoming parts of themselves, even if it is themselves 30 years ago. I I guess my thing is like, why am I reading this book then? Right. Like because, you know, Meredith and I don't I met I met them. I met her one time. Why am I reading your book 
if your book is telling telling me anti or pro white <laughs> sentiments like i don't know i just i sort of felt like why am i here and and it's funny that you bring up Tressie McMillan Cottom because someone in the Stacks Pack, Crystal, shout out to the Stacks Pack, she mentioned in our Discord that she was didn't another black woman did not care for the book very much and was like, as soon as I finished, I went and I picked up the first essay in Thick, which is all about beauty standards and like whiteness and beauty. And so I read that today before before talking to you, Tressie's uh, essay. And I think that for me, and like Tressie's just so much smarter than I'll ever be. So please forgive me. Just read the essay, everyone. But for me, I think that it's the idea, the idea of beauty, which Tressie kind of says is like, it's something that's supposed to be attainable, but also something that you're born with, because that makes it something that not everybody can have, but that everybody can have. And so therefore, it means that people who have beauty are therefore like have something worthy of having, because if anyone can get it, then it's not worth having. And that part, I think, is like really what stuck out to me about this book is that it felt like Meredith was saying at once not only was I born beautiful, but also I became beautiful. And so like, ha ha ha, everyone else, like you're, you will never be this thing. And I don't know that that's what Meredith believes, but that's how I read the way that Meredith was so focused on beauty and like everyone's beauty, other people's beauty. Like she, she hooks up with a guy it's like, I would never normally hook up with that guy. He's not beautiful enough for me. Or like, Lenora is not as pretty as I am. I'm more beautiful than her. Or my grandma, you know, like, and I understand that that's like being reinforced to her in different ways. But this like obsession with beauty and thinking about beauty as like being this like not real thing, it just sort of felt like then this book is sort of like this not real thing because there's no reflection from the author or like guidance from the author. I don't know if that made any sense, but like, I think that a lot of my frustration stems from like, I want my memoirists to have a point of view a little bit about their life. And I feel like, I feel like she definitely did, but I feel like I could have used a little more, a little more guidance on where, where do you want me to be on you, Meredith? Because right now I'm kind of out on you, but like, I feel like you could help me get in on you if you gave me a little something, something to work with here. Okay. So now this is a like this is a very new conversation with me with respect to the book. And it's actually really highlighting for me how much like I'm thinking back about my experience of reading the book. And I'm wondering to what extent and actually something very similar happened, like this sort of like uh Rorschach, what's that called? Rorschach mm, test. Yeah, Rorschach test. Yeah, yeah. The ink on the paper. Right. This conversation that we're having reminded me about the the very bifurcated reaction to the Alex Tizan Atlantic piece, My Family's Slave. I don't don't think I know that one. Okay, so there was this essay that was um, published in The Atlantic by the late Alex Tizan, he's Filipino, but he basically talks about how, like, in the Philippines, there's this particular, it's not a caste system, but there's very much like a, like a, socioeconomic hierarchy in which if you're born into a certain class a i.e like the like domestic work it's very very difficult to maneuver around that and it's very very honest about the 
all sorts of exploitation and the exploitation and the abuse that I, I frankly like domestic workers face. And here Alex was talking about specifically his family when he was a kid, the 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 domestic worker that helped raise him. That was what he was he was referring to. And I remember like there's this bifurcated reaction of like a lot of um Filipino audiences were like, oh my gosh, like we have been so absent from the public sphere and we have a story about us that's complicated and nuanced on the front of the Atlantic. I don't know if I can truly convey like what is the impact of living in this country when there is absolutely zero representation of your group. Right. Like it's right. gonna in some ways it's making me see how like the and this happens whenever there's new representation, like what's our role? Is our role to sort of like keep the momentum going or do we apply criticism at the risk of like right. not getting sure. another chance? So it, anyway, sure. I yeah. But anyway, the bifurcated reaction was like some people just hated it and some people were really like they loved it. And I, I'm like reminded of that in our conversation here. Yeah. And like, I I should be fair. I did not hate this book. I just think that this book brought up a lot of things that I did not like, which is like, I think that the book is valuable. And I think the book is well written. And I think it's like a good book, you know, sort of ob as objectively as one can be about a book. Like the writing is good. It's good storytelling. The pacing, all of that is great. So I'm, I guess what I'm saying is like, it's not a bad book. I just didn't like it. Like, I don't think that it helped me. It didn't, because here's the thing that it didn't do for me. It didn't make me feel like I understood Filipino culture more because I think, and I, and I do want to talk about this a little bit, is that I think that Meredith, at least young Meredith, Meredith, the, the Meredith in this book had a little bit of like obsession with being an outsider for various reasons. And I think like maybe like a, like a badge of honor about being an observer, being an outsider. You know, some people are like in the thick of things and some people are on the outside. And I think Meredith is very proud of having been on the outside, at least at that part of their life. And so I did not feel like I understood Filipino culture anymore. I felt like I understood this one life. Um, oh my gosh. And also, and I also do think that like, I don't know, I've heard it said before. I don't know if it's true. I grew up in the Bay Area, lots of Filipino people. The Filipinos are the blacks of, of Asia, of Asians. Have you heard that? I have, but that's not what you would get from this memoirs. <laughs> no. Well, like some of some of this book, like the grandma, I was like, yes, that's a black grandma. I, I feel her vibe. She loves her <laughs> grandson. She's she's proud that her grandson is beautiful. She loves her grandson. She's even OK with her grandson being gay, being trans. It's a little difficult. It's a, it's a little bit of a bridge too far for old granny. But like even grandma saying, I loved you, past tense, I didn't read it as Meredith read it. Meredith read it as the grandma being like, I used to love you. And I read it as like, I loved that little boy who's no longer here. I didn't read it as I don't love you anymore. Uh -huh. I just read it as like, I loved you. Huh, like, interesting. So part of the reason that I don't feel like I learned a lot about Filipino culture is because I don't feel like Meredith firmly placed herself in her family or her culture. I feel like she was always like a little detached and observing what was going on. And maybe that's because that's how she felt because she was an albino in a, in a Brown community. Like I get that a thousand percent, but then again at Harvard, it's like, Oh, I'm on the outside looking in. And so I didn't feel like I really was like let inside Harvard. Like 
because Meredith was our narrator and Meredith was always on the outside looking in. And I think that maybe that was like a tactic and a choice, certainly. But it didn't it wasn't like when I've read books about people or places where I'm like, oh, I'm getting such a sense of this community or this culture or this family. Like I didn't have that reaction at all. Mm. What's hilarious is that when this book was going to be <laughs> what we were reading, my first thought was like, oh my gosh, Tracy is going to learn about the Philippines and she's going to have some <laughs> sense of like the interpersonal dynamics, uh, like, like the familial dynamics, intergenerational dynamics. This is where I think I have a block or this is where I think the the insider reader, there's a little bit of a disadvantage because I can connect the dots. So like, as I was reading this, and, you know, it's reminding me of when I read books about like other countries and I'm kind of like lost unless the, the writer goes really, really in scene, like draws out the smells, the sights, mm-hmm, everything. Mm-hmm. And as you're speaking, I'm realizing that there was there's a lot about the social relationships, but not a lot about the scene. So, for example, mm. the idea of, of Meredith going from province to Manila, like. Yeah. That is like a crystal clear, uh, crystallized narrative in the Philippines. The idea of her showing up at these TV studios. I know exactly the street where like Philippine mm. television gets made. And then this idea of like parents not raising their kids. It's so it's it's allocated. It, the, the responsibility is um, given to some delegated to some other relative. That was a very distinctly Filipino thing. The transnational families. So. Oddly enough, I actually thought like when you read this, you'd be like, oh, wow, I have like I kind of know a little bit more about the Philippines. (laughs) That's so funny. I think also because I have trained myself and told myself often is like no one story can tell me about any place. So I think I also like fight a lot of that when I'm reading is like. Like, because I hate when people are like, oh, I read Sula. I know what it's like to be black. I'm like, what the fuck are you saying? (laughs) Like, that's a crazy sentence. So I think I also personally just like push against that of like, okay, I've read this book by a Filipino author. Like, Meredith is not every, like, you know what I mean? So I think like I'm always consciously like trying to push against that. I definitely think like I learned things, but I didn't feel like this book was like, a great example. It didn't, it didn't feel like that to me about Philippine culture, about gay culture, like about any of the circles in which Meredith, you know, and many, any of Meredith's Venn diagram circles. I didn't feel like I was like, Oh, now I understand gay men at Harvard better. Uh Like I, I don't, I didn't feel that way at all. Um, Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have 
considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, you had more to say. Go ahead, I cut you off. Yeah, the funny thing is not only did I think you'd res- part one would, res- would resonate because you would like see the Philippines in a particular way, but also I thought part two about the Harvard years would resonate because you, you're someone who went from California to an elite university. And so yeah. I thought there would be something there that you could recognize. Do you know what I think it is? Maybe part of it is that I don't think that I relate to Meredith because so much of Meredith's identity, even though we both share a love of theater and the arts, I find myself to be and I don't I mean this like not in a judgmental way, but just in a in like an observation. I find myself to be a person who's very much not an outsider. I always want to be on the inside. I always want to know the hot goss. I always want to be at a table full of people. I never want to be an outsider looking in, which I think is actually like a fatal flaw of mine because I oftentimes jump into things and I don't observe. But that like detached view of her life, I think that Mm -hmm. was really hard for me to connect with just because that's not how I am. Like, yes, I went from California to New York. I went from, uh, well, I was living in a big city, went from a big city to a bigger city, but I went from a predominantly white institution to a predominantly white institution. Like a lot of those things are similar. Love of theater, put on shows in college, all of that stuff. But my experience was like just so different. And like, I was just so in the thick of everything that like the feeling of being like left out, whether I was or not, I certainly wasn't involved in everything in college, but like I've created my own community and very much like had a place that I felt like I fit in. And so I think that like, I I don't know. I don't know what it, I don't know what it was about the way the book was written, but I just felt like Meredith was like holding us back. And I didn't love, I didn't love that feeling. I, I much prefer to be Put me in it. Put me in, coach. I want to yeah. know. Like, tell me everything. There's a scene. There's a scene like in the in the early part of the second part where it's about the like literally the first days that that Meredith at Harvard and 
all of the cultural collisions, all the class collisions, everything from like the way people carried themselves and the way people spoke. So here's the thing too, I think kind of, this is where maybe my, um, how this resonated me may have created blocks and how I see things, but I actually really loved this chapter because when I went to Stanford from LA, I hated it. I hated mm. life. I didn't understand like the white the way white folks un- interacted, like white aesthetic for cool. Like I it was it felt mm. as foreign as Meredith portrayed it as someone that's an immigrant or someone that's like from a particular class background arriving at Harvard. It's a different story and it's a different school, but the 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 feeling I thought totally resonated with me. The only difference is I think she eventually gained entree into gay spaces and she gained entree into white spaces. And I did the, I I did not at all. In fact, I, I found myself finding my home in, in predominantly like black and, and Latino social circles in undergrad, because that's the, that's what felt most familiar in some ways. Like I, like this is where I think we have difference in biography. There's not any point in my life where I've ever wanted or aspired to become white hmm. in my life. So I'm, and it, as you can see from this, that aspiration to be American or to be white was very much. Right. So central. There. Mm-hmm. I think another thing that's a difference between my college experience and both yours and Maris is that I went to New York city. Yeah. And that's not a place that suffers from not being around different kinds of people. While New York is still very segregated and racist and fucked up, it was easy for me to get from NYU to wherever I needed to go to experience whatever I needed to experience in a way that you're not getting that in Palo Alto. Like I'm familiar with Stanford. You're not getting (laughs) it there. I'm familiar with Boston. I'm familiar with Harvard, specifically in Cambridge. You're not getting that there. And so it definitely is like a more isolating feeling than I had because also NYU doesn't have really have a campus. So like my dorm was, you know, just in, I had a dorm in Chinatown one year. Like you're just not getting that at any, not even Columbia, like Columbia has its own little enclave up there. So I feel like I think part of my college experience was really different because I was like just in New York City going to theater with my friends. But back to your point. I want to talk about passing. I don't I want to make sure we talk about this. So the first thing I want to say for people who discovered the word passing in 2020, a lot of you are using it wrong, okay? So I just want to really quickly lay it out. Passing is not that you are light-skinned or look light-skinned and therefore you're passing. No. Passing has an intent behind it. You have to want to pass as something else. You can't you it's not that you're mistaken. It's not like, oh, someone mistook me for being white. I'm passing. No, you're not passing. That's another person's accident. Passing is the choice in this case where Meredith would say, where people say, oh, where are you from? And she would say California and pretend to be a white girl or a white boy. Passing is a choice to be something else. So like, I I think they use it the same like in gay communities, passing for straight, where you make the concerted effort to be like, I'm not going to talk in a certain way or dress in a certain way or talk about my partner in a certain way or use certain language so that people think that I'm straight. That is passing. A person being like, oh, that's a straight guy. That's not passing. That's someone just mislabeling someone. So I just want to be really clear that passing has to have intent from the person. It's not enough 
or or if someone mistakes you and like you don't correct them or whatever, that can be a form of passing. But that's a little bit more like maybe you just don't have the time today. I just want to be really clear on what passing is and isn't because I've heard people be like, oh, she's white passing. I'm like, no, she's just she just looks white. Like <laughs> she's not white passing. She'll tell you she's Mexican all day. She just looks white. Like, like that's different. It's uh, and have you read Alison Hobbs book on, on passing? There's like no Alison Hobbs, a, a black woman. She's a historian. She writes about the historical phenomenon of passing. It's really good. Obviously, there's like a lot of different renderings of passing as it plays out here with respect to like black white relations and how it was a choice, but it's very much one choice that was informed by like what are the, the constraints with of one's life and opportunity. Right. So right. it's a uh, yeah, I guess with passing, it's passing is really contingent on how the other people see you. And I think right. in some ways that's that was interesting is that like the white folks at Harvard couldn't tell because they're so not accustomed to or don't have practice to thinking through the lens of race. And that's why her her one friend who's black was able to see it like from a mile away. So I mean, when I met Meredith, it was before I knew anything about the book. And I knew that Meredith was not a white person. Like, it it's, was actually jarring for me to read the book and hear her keeping like, oh, yeah, everyone thinks I'm white. I'm like, they do? What's wrong with white people? Why do they think you're white? What can they, what am I seeing that, that you're, that they're not seeing? You know, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and this is where I think some of the interviews that I've heard of Meredith might inform this because there is, I mean, she's talked about this where when it comes to performing or adhering to certain prescribed rules of how certain gender looks, how certain race looks, she's in recent years tried to, I don't want to speak for her, but like she's in recent years tried to pull back from that tendency Mm. to, I guess, uh, perfectly manufacture like some image. But um, I guess here's the thing that makes me think like, to what extent is this writer obligated to prove it if that is the reality that they were existing with wait prove prove oh no i'm not saying that that's not how people perceived her i'm just saying what's wrong with white people that they can't tell like that so many black people just passed for white who just like looked black and had like kinky hair and like all of these things and then white people are like yeah that's a white person it's like you guys made up all this race shit and then you can't even fucking prove your own shit (laughs) i'm not saying that meredith was lying about it i'm just saying like white people what is going on you guys have a whole system based on being able to prove this thing and then you can't even do it yeah you know when it comes to passing what's funny is that when i read the early chapter about the filipino actor that's albino redford white I remember it. It. it I. Tr- I like literally remember when I was a kid seeing this person on like Philippine TV and like describing him as the white guy or the American. Like he's American, but for some reason he's in the Philippines. That's weird. And so hmm. I didn't actually know that this person was was Filipino but albino in similar ways. And this is going to point to my own ignorance about the way uh, blackness works in different parts of the country. I had. I remember having a classmate in high school where he was Creole. And he would very much identify as black, but all sorts of people would try to, and he's from Louisiana too, all sorts of people would try to tell him like, like basically give him the litmus test. And I'm talking not black people, I'm talking about like non-black students, both white and students of color that are not black. And so it's, I wasn't equipped with the, I guess, the racial schema to, to really see that like someone that, 
looks like that actor is not actually white, but has a condition that makes their skin white. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just looked up the actor. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. I was not familiar with his work. I can't speak for every person who is, has albinism or whatever, uh-huh. but like for me, for Meredith, I did not for a second before I knew anything about Meredith, I did not for a second think that that was a white person. Um, but I think also, I feel like I spend a lot of my time as a black American trying to be like, that's a black person about light skinned black people. Like it's one of my, it might not be a flattering pastime, but it's something that I do. Like I I become obsessed with light skinned people being like that person's they've got some black in them. Um, which is one of my favorite phrases. Like I, I just got in trouble. I was on someone else's bachelor podcast and I said that a girl was black cause she was fucking black and she was. And then this woman sent me like some, or sent a message being like, just because someone has a distant black relative doesn't make them black. And I'm like, lady, have you heard about race in America? That's a great point. You should take it to, I don't know, 1750 and talk to those people. Like I didn't make the rules. Them's the rules. So I don't know. I think I'm like, because I, I think because I maybe because I was familiar with the idea of passing from a young age because my family is Creole and that's like a big thing. And like my dad was dark, very dark skinned, but he was like sort of obsessed with this idea of passing too. I think that maybe I'm like obsessed with trying to uncover people who are very close proximity to whiteness, but like aren't quite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that the rules are good. Like, <laughs> I don't think it should be that way necessarily. I just... I'm familiar with the rules of the game and I like to uncover any people that are potentially passing or just look white. Mm-hmm. But I, I just found it interesting to this point, which I said before, it's less that people thought that Meredith was white and more that every time Meredith said people, she meant white people. Like, I wish that she had explored the fact that like every time she was around a person of color, her cover was blown, you know, because like, the thing is, Meredith was passing for white, like very, very much so. Like when someone would ask about her life, she would leave out the part about being from the Philippines and she would only kind of wield that information in fits and spurts to certain people. Like even the boyfriend, uh, Rafe, he didn't know for a long time. Um, and so I think that like less the fact that people didn't know and more the fact that Meredith was like proud of that or was using that in some way for like access and privilege that again was like I would have loved some reflection on that like what does that do to you what does that do to Meredith to like be constantly feeling like she has to be pretend to be white in order to have access or to have like an easy life like I'd love to know I that's a question I would have loved answered in the book yeah 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 and I think see like I I didn't read it that way like I read it as like this is how I was and maybe it's like the disadvantage that exists is that I've interacted with this person. Right. And I've interacted with this person specifically, actually, in POs, like writers of color spaces. So the first time I met mm-hmm. Meredith was at the um, Kima Jones, had this week long workshop in Savannah, Georgia. And Meredith was one of the, the speakers or the, the mentors. And so I'm wondering, and, and you don't necessarily have that. IRL reference point and then so right. so the book is more it exists it stands alone in a in a way that it it, it never actually has for me 
Right, 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 right. Yeah, I think that the like, like I said at the beginning, I know a lot of writers who know Meredith and like Meredith and speak very highly of her. And so as I was reading this book, even that little bit, I was like, okay, there's got to be more to this person because the person who is in this book is not friends <laughs> with the people that I've heard that she's friends with. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, I, I can't bridge that gap. And she didn't bridge it for me. And so that's, I think, why I wanted like the reckoning or the reflection, because it's sort of just read as like Asian girl wants to be white. And I'm like, that can't be that can't be all that this person is. And that I mean, I'm obviously saying that sort of tongue in cheek and very tropey and like very much simplifying this entire book into like a kind of offhanded comment. Uh-huh. But it it did read like that a little bit. The thing is, like, and maybe this is why it's good to have book discussions because like everything you're saying as much as I am like a hardcore sociologist I have a literate a master's in literature so I'm used to like trying to (laughs) anticipate like how folks will read this right I this is so out of left field for me like the 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 response you have and I'm like really yeah and so I'm wondering like and I really do think that it is shaped by how like again literally from like it wasn't until i was like in like age 20 when i finally picked up a piece of paper that right. like described someone that was even like that was that was like i considered like i had a sense of we with mm-hmm. so i i imagine that that what that means is like any morsel you get you're going to be like you're going to hold on to it for dear life so Great. But I also think because of your insider status and like because you are Filipino and like that that a lot of this is your experience, you're able to read it in a more discerning way than I am. And so I think that like it doesn't probably read the same for you because you understand like nuances and complexities that I don't. And I think that like while I never want to ask any author or person of color or queer person or anything to like hold my hand, I do think that like when it comes to memoir and you're writing from a, about a person that you were 20 plus years ago, my expectation is that there is some reflection, reckoning, response to what you did, who you were, that I just felt like, because also it wasn't just like about these things. There were so many people in the book that like wronged Meredith or like hurt Meredith in different ways that I did not feel like she owned up to a lot of the ways that she hurt other people, including like her friend Lenora. Like I felt like that was sort of glossed over. It was like I went to him. I really liked him. I told him I loved him. I was hotter than her, whatever. And then we were still friends. And then she sent me a letter and was like, I don't want to be your friend anymore. That really hurt me. And I never talked to her again. And there was no like... I can't believe that I was operating from this place where I felt like, you know, like there was no reflection on that. And like there was no reflection on the mom and like how how the mom like it sounds like the mom was struggling with some things. And like not that that's Meredith's job, but also like you sort of left us hanging on the mom. Like what happened to the mom? What happened to the dad? Like I just felt like I wanted, I just needed more of Meredith 2020 to help me make sense of Meredith 1994 because a lot I have to assume has changed between 94 and 2020 <laughs> for Meredith. I mean, let's hope that things have changed for anyone that exists. Yes, 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 of I, course. I was I, eating Dunkaroos. <laughs> I'm still eating Dunkaroos, but 
I love them more than I do now. Oh my god, 1994. I was probably went out home alone because my parents worked and like pretending to be a figure skater in my living room secretly because okay. <laughs> we had a, this, a similar life. Obviously, we were figure skating. <laughs> but uh, I read that story that you mentioned about her being wrong, like doing her friend dirty. Like I read it completely the opposite way. I actually you was did? like, I did, I did. So that story for the folks that have read it, because we said there's going to be spoilers. Um, Meredith had a crush on BFF, a dude. Um, and she had another friend, Lenora. I think the friend's name was Richard. Richard. So Mer- Meredith had a really good friend named Richard. Basically, they were like, you know, three's company, like the three amigos, yeah. whatever. And then at some point, at some point, and this is where I, this, I wonder how you're going to react to what I say. At some <laughs> point, <laughs> Lenora and Richard get together and they mm-hmm. confess or they confide in Meredith that they're together. And Meredith is fuming about it, like is mm-hmm. angry. I thought the fact that she even wrote the story was an illustration of her like willing to throw throw herself under under the bus or like really put herself up for critique and the way i read it in a couple of ways as a, as a as a gay person who has been obsessed with making sure that i'm perfect so i can survive the fact that someone was willing to write about again another like unbecoming moment when they were mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. really they they kind of were fucked up you know like that was like she was going to write a letter trying to break him up or something, but it was really, she was jealous and fucked up. Here's the thing that gives me a little bit of empathy for that situation. I am a gay person. I, I think I read in the world as Asian. I think most people think I'm Filipino, but I also, so in the, in a similar way that like, I didn't have access to the experience of seeing my life or history rendered in text or in movies. Another thing that I lacked access to as a gay person, especially one that came out in my early 20s and grew up during the AIDS crisis, was that while all of my friends, straight friends, were experiencing like love and emotion and like holding hands, first crushes, first everything, first kisses at age like 12, 13, 14, I was with, like, because of homophobia, I didn't have access to that experience until literally 10 years later. And I went through an entire high school and college experience witnessing other people play, like, experience things I wasn't allowed to experience. And let's just say that the, the rage that comes from that, that I didn't even know I had, I think would come out in very comparable situations. Like, what Meredith Mm -hmm. described about being jealous of a friend mm-hmm. who's straight being with like I can relate to that feeling of of just like really uncontrollable rage and jealousy because mm-hmm. as a as a queer person that wasn't out or didn't even know what I was like there was that has been bottled up for like 10 years and so it, it yeah. makes sense to me like very clearly why that rage happened when people don't have access to uh, the experience of desirability, and then here she has her best friend that seems to have it quite easily. It's misplaced mm-hmm. like anger, but right. it's it's sure. real anger nonetheless. I agree with everything you're saying, and I wish that Meredith had put some of that <laughs> in the book. 
like that's the part that I'm missing is like a little bit of like the reflection or context because also like at that point in the book, Meredith is in a long-term relationship with the person that loves her very, very much and takes very good care of her and treats her very well until she decides that, you know, she's no longer comfortable keeping a certain part of herself, like this woman part of herself. And that's where there's like this fracture and the relationship is that Rafe doesn't want that. But like leading up to that, he's very, you know, loving and kind and sympathetic. And it sounds like as far as the book goes, Meredith doesn't have like ill will toward him. You know, I just wanted more of like a reflection on what was going on. Like that's really my biggest complaint about the book is like, Um. I wanted, I wanted more in, like I didn't need a book that was all just memories. I needed a book that helped me to understand why this life, like is this story is like worthy of telling and like why tell it now and why write about these things and why are these things important to who you are? And I just didn't feel like, like that was there. Um, I have to do a slight shift because literally we've talked for almost an hour and we like barely have talked about Meredith's transitioning, which I think is like sort of something that we should address on this book because <laughs> when we talk about this book, because I think that's like a big part of the book is that Meredith eventually goes on to to come out as transgendered. Uh, they She goes to Thailand to have gender reassignment surgery. This is like in like 99, 2000, I believe, or maybe slightly after that. One of the things I found really interesting, and I'm so, and this again is something that I would have loved more clarification from Meredith. In 2000 or 2002 or whenever she transitioned, it wasn't a thing that people were doing in the same ways as publicly as people are doing now. It wasn't something that was like in the zeitgeist in the same way. We talked about transgender people as a country and as a community in a lot of very disparaging and harmful and horrible ways. The way that Meredith talked about her own experience with gender to me felt so different than how we're talking about it now that it was actually like kind of confusing for me as a reader, like talking about, you know, wanting to become a woman so that Richard would like her and like, like those kind of things, which is like how I imagine that anti-trans people talk about trans people. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make yeah. sense? And again, this is where I think we're like seeing it in so opposite ways. Okay, I, okay I, go ahead. Because I feel like I really got this part wrong. And like, I, I, I don't know. I just, again, I just need, I think I just needed Meredith to hold my hand more. I'm maybe I'm like sort of not that smart of a reader when it comes to this book and I needed more, but I, yeah, like, and like talking about like imagining being a lady and like she wanted to be like the perfect wife for Rafe and like all of this stuff that I felt like sort of not how we talk about gender and sexuality and like all of that stuff now. Yeah, I you know in in some ways, and maybe a, again, this is where I think I have the advantage of having heard her talk a little bit about it. But in in a sense, like with trans people, uh, often the first question they get has to do with transition. And so, what does it mean for so a trans person to write a book where tra- the transition is decentered, like very very yeah. decentered? I think there's something to that uh, because, like, in a lot of ways, as much as I write about queer topics, I, I have my or Filipino whatever i have my days where i almost resent that i can't just write something without people expecting me to write about my identities um when in fact there's a lot of arenas in my life where i'm not saying like my race and sexuality don't matter in those contexts but they're not necessarily the frames through which i'm like existing 
So right. the other part about the trans, this, this is a story about a trans, this is where, again, like, I think when I read this book, I was also like inhaling memoir from other folks. And mm. I don't want to, I don't want to specify who or what ethnicity, but I read, you know, some like Asian American memoirs, a Filipino memoirs. And I, a lot of them, when I was reading them, I felt like they were too clean. Like they just mm. put the bow on their life story. Yeah. Everything made sense. I hate that too. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't like that. So here I, in some ways I saw Meredith's book as like the antithesis to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I did have the luxury of having met her and, and, and knowing some, like, in, I, like I was very much anchored in knowing what her politics were when it came to like, uh, race issues in the year 20, whatever, 2018, 2019. And, and I can see how it lands different if you don't meet this person. But I, I did want to like ask, like, this is, I think what we're, mo- so I've listened to a lot of pretty much every episode of the stacks and there's some episodes where the book club, there's a lot of agreement between you and the, yeah. uh, the guests, but I, I also, yeah. yeah, I also want to talk about what it means for people to critique and disagree about minoritized writers. Cause I feel like in this yeah. moment, we don't allow for critique or nuance. There's just so much needing to like, I don't know if social media contributes to this, but like in some ways, like critique is an illustration of like love of. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you if I could flip it back on you. Like, how does it feel to engage with a text where you're, it's like total opposite, like you're, you're reacting to the book in total opposite ways. Is it interesting? Is it weird? Is it like anxiety? Opposite ways from you, you mean? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, so I agree. I think critique is like uh, the, one of the highest forms of love. (laughs) I mean, that, Bell hooks might want to punch me in the face for that. May she rest in peace. Um, but I do think that there's an element of like love and care that goes into critique. And as you know, I'm a big proponent of talking openly and honestly about how books make us feel, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent, which to me is the worst thing you could say about a book is that you're indifferent about it. Um, <laughs> I have had other books that I have not liked that my guests liked. But what makes me uncomfortable about this book is that, as I mentioned before, I don't share a lot of identities with Meredith. Like we've Mm -hmm. had a very different life experiences in a lot of ways and come from different communities and are perceived in the world differently. And so I recognize that like I'm probably missing a lot of things or like being unfair, being harsh in ways that like maybe I should be less harsh and more fair. I don't know. So that gives me anxiety and it makes me stressed out. And also like, I do think that we should be able to criticize works by people of color in the same spirit, but maybe not the same way that we critique works by straight white cis men. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think, I think that it makes the art better. I do. I think that like having debate and having, you know, coming from a place of like, liking a thing you know like I'm not trying to come from a place of like fuck Meredith because I again I think that the book is really well written and beautiful I just wanted more of Meredith in 2020 and and like to help make sense of the thing but like I I think we've got to critique 
these things. Like, I think it's so important for the work. I think it's so important for books. I think it's so important for readers. I think it's so important for me personally. Like, just it helps me to think and understand better. So while I feel uncomfortable having to have this conversation that's recorded onto a microphone that people will be able to listen to in a year or two or five or eight or whatever, hopefully, God willing, um, (laughs) I think that it's still like worthy and important. Please direct all your hate mail to Anthony. That's Anthony. (laughs) No, and I I read critique similarly, but there's one caveat I have. I think that when there is an abundance of, of data points of representation, critique and land in a way that it doesn't um, hinder like the opportunities because there's already sort of an abundance of representation. And I, I'm not, I'm sure. oversimplifying here, but again, like coming from the point of view as like a group that has just been invisible, like my entire life. And finally at like, I'm like 41. So like, this is like this moment when Filipino texts yeah. are, are seeing the mainstream big five publishers, like that shit floors me. I think that there's a little bit of a fear whenever I hear critique. As much as I think critique's important, I have a little bit of fear whenever critique is um, a, something that's Filipino related gets critique because I think like, oh shit, like we're never going to get a chance again. We're going to have to wait another 10, 20 years because this this critique, while done in the spirit of love, can be weaponized by a larger industry like of white right. folks. And so it's a it's a little bit of a conundrum. What at the end of the day, Merit's book, I really I I, I hear everything you're saying and I completely uh like I can see it completely from where you're we're coming from now. But with uh Merit's book, I you know, compared to other Filipino memoirs and and books, I I thought it was the most real. And in that sense, mm. that's why I, I, I liked it. Cause I felt like when I've read other Filipino memoirs, I was like, mm, you're kind of painting yourself in too good of a light when I know for mm. a fact I've been in those spaces and I'm like, so the right. violation of like the almost like airbrushing the truth was a bigger sin than the lack mm. of a, yeah. a reckoning in this book. Right. And I, I do want to say like, just because I didn't like this book. It doesn't mean that I don't think that people should shouldn't read it. Like obviously you know this about me and listeners know this about me like I critique all things in the same spirit of nothing is perfect and I just think that like I do think that when there's like this whole thing where people are like, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And like, we're never going to get another chance and all of this stuff that I just think is like a scarcity mentality. And it's something that I feel in my heart, but it's also something that I push back against because I think that like, at like one of my bosses who is a monster sometimes would say feelings aren't facts. And like, maybe they're not facts, but they matter. But I, I guess my point is like, I feel the scarcity mentality like I feel worried when I critique things it's like no one's gonna get another chance and whatever but at the same time I'm a black woman talking about these things and so no one's listening to me anyways like the truth of the matter is I also am not gonna get another chance do you know what I mean like and not to say that that's okay or not okay but the point is sort of like if we aren't doing this work with our own stuff like we're it's a disservice to the people who do show up in these spaces like because I've because I felt so uncomfortable in certain parts of this book and like because it felt difficult for me to read like if I ignored that I feel like I would be ignoring parts of or people in my audience 
who showed up to read this book with us and maybe had similar feelings and it would like, you know, invalidate those feelings. And I think like it's okay to not agree and to and to talk openly about these things without feeling like it's our it's on us to make this happen. Like publishing needs to do better. Like that's not my problem. They still need to publish <laughs> Filipino books. Like you can't blame me. Like we can't no, no. you and I can't be responsible. No, not that you are, but I'm just saying like we can't be responsible. Like we still went out and bought the book. So we did our part to support the book. So if if you know, right wider audiences want to try to blame like, oh, a black woman said she didn't like this part. Like, that's not on me. That's white supremacy. Like, that's I can't be responsible to that. Like, I feel but I do also feel responsible to the people that I asked to read the book that like I want to talk openly about the things that made me feel uncomfortable because if I felt it, I have to imagine other people did too. And what I found interesting because we're recording this after we announced the book which usually I oftentimes record before we ever announce the book. So I don't ever get listener feedback before we record. I've gotten a really huge mixed response about this book. A lot oh, wow. of people have talked about how they're they're really excited to hear this episode because they don't feel comfortable talking about it or they don't know how to talk about it or they want to talk about certain things. A lot of them that I didn't get to today. So I do feel like this book is provocative in like some of the best ways, whether you liked it or didn't like it. I think it brought up a lot of things, which the best literature does that, you know, like to your point, the tidy stuff. I hate that too. I don't like when books are tidy and clean. And, and I would much prefer to read a book like this that was messy and made me feel mad and upset and irritated and excited and all of these things than have a book that I'm like, that was nice. Bye. (laughs) Um, so if publishing wants to be like, we're never going to publish another Filipino book because Tracy didn't like uh, Ferris, please send me a huge check because I'm obviously a very important consultant for you and I'd love to be paid. <laughs> but also, fuck you, publishing. Like, don't, you know, like, don't weaponize us. Like, that's bullshit, too. Yeah, that's um, we have to go because we're like literally out of time by so many minutes. However, I do want to say one thing because we didn't get to this. The cover and the title. We always do the cover and the title. Do you have this white cover with the um, I have light, both. light I have, lashes? Okay. So there's like the rainbow cover that has black eye, like a black eye closed with eyelashes. And then there's, I think that's what that is, right? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. eyelashes. Um, and then there's the white cover that has a blue kind of to purple pink ombre eyelash. Um, any thoughts about the cover and or the title? Uh, you know, I saw the the colors as the trans flag colors. So oh, yeah, but it's different colors on the cover of the colorful book. There's yellow and orange and stuff too, right? It's like rain. There's the paperback, which is like rainbow. Yeah. And then there's yeah. the hardback slash the arc, which is white with uh, an eyelash that's goes from like the light trans. blue to, to pink in the same way the trans flag does. Yeah. Um, Ferris, I I I think it was a double or whatever trip. Like it has multiple meanings, like fair skin, yeah. fa- like equality, fairest. Um, how people fair is that spelled differently? Oh shit! Uh oh, there's. I my, think that is spelled differently, but whatever. There's Who my knows? word I can't spell since I asking the wrong person. <laughs> so, but uh, fairest. Yeah, I I like that it was a play on like fair skin and and like thinking about like fair opportunity. 
Yeah. And I think I was thinking about it as fair skinned and fair as in beautiful, like who's the fairest of them all. And then in the last sentence of the book, which I love, this was probably my favorite part of the book is where Meredith says, I know, I now know there's no such thing as the single best life, the single fairest life. And I was like, oh, that's like, is it fair? Did things like, that's how I read that. Like, is it fair? Um, Did things work out? like equitably or whatever. So I really like that twist. I love when the title shows up in the book like that. Um, one of my favorite things. I hate that we have to rush because I feel like we could talk about this for another three hours. Um, but Anthony, thank you so much for putting up with me talking openly about a book that I had some issues with that you loved because I think that it's really hard to do. And I'm glad that you were willing to be here with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm glad that um, we got to have a really complicated conversation. Yeah, me too. Uh, Stay tuned, everyone else, to find out our book for November. And everyone, we will see you in the snacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Anthony Ocampo for returning to the show and for digging into this book in a really challenging and exciting way. And now for the reveal of our November book club pick, it is Prisons by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. The book is co-written by journalists Maya Schwerner and Victoria Law. We will be discussing this book on November 30th. Tune in next week to find out who our guest will be. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 